Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast exploring the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and I'm happy to give you ideas that can elevate your leadership, whether it is in your current role or perhaps in your next role with a nonprofit organization. Now, I'm guessing you fall in one of two camps when it comes to reading professional development books and other content around this topic. Um, Some of you have a nice stack of books right by your bedside table and you're working diligently through them on a regular basis. Others of you probably were like me and you have that stack of books by your bedside table, but you are not finding the time to get through them. And in fact, when today's guest approached me some 15 years ago about more professional development reading, I was absolutely in the camp of, hey, uh, good idea, but I don't have time. I'm busy, like so many of you are in the nonprofit uh, space. Well, Chris Delisio, our guest, who is a senior director at The Ohio State University, was persistent and convinced me of the value of finding time, making time, to get into professional development reading, to expand your view of the world certainly offering tactical support for the day-to-day job that you have, but also broadening your whole sphere of professional development resources. So Chris and I talk about exactly that, some of the conversations we had early on where he motivated me with, frankly, competition, um, matching book for book along an entire year so that I was able to develop a habit that has uh, been largely maintained to this day. And so I think it's one that you will enjoy. But be assured, this is not simply a virtual walk through the bookstore uh, with a long list of books. We're going to talk about resources specific to the three stages of nonprofit professional development. Number one, um, what do you need when you're just getting started or want to join the nonprofit sector? Number two, uh, how do you sharpen and build on your professional development skills and experience when you're in the sector aspiring to be a senior leader? And third, how do you shift into senior leadership? Those of you that are executive directors right now and trying to be even better in your role and, frankly, guide the professional development of those that work for you. These are the topics, and Chris is uniquely qualified, having reached a senior level at one of the largest university advancement organizations in the country. Uh, He has the viewpoint not only of his own journey to senior leadership, but of the dozens of uh, nonprofit professionals and fundraisers that work for him and at Ohio State. As always, don't forget to check out the show notes associated with this episode, number 24. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll find all of the resources Chris and I discuss, particularly the books. And you can find out more about the work Chris is doing at Ohio State and perhaps learn more about the things going on for them, campaign planning, and other topics we discuss during this episode. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode and conversation with Chris Delisio. Chris, thank you for joining me on the path. Glad to be here, Patton. Chris, you and I have had many discussions on professional development. In fact, 
you were an inspiration in terms of professional development reading for me. So I'm grateful to have this conversation and, and talk about your journey along the nonprofit path, lessons learned and advice you might share. So with that, perhaps you can share with the audience a little bit about your journey. How did you get on the nonprofit path? Yeah, so, so I didn't necessarily start out on the path to nonprofit uh, leadership, uh, but I'm glad I, I made my way there. Uh, I started uh, maybe like you, always liking athletics and particularly college athletics and thought I wanted to work uh, in the world of college athletics uh, and started out early on in college athletics and then moved to North Carolina Special Olympics where I met you, Dr. McDowell, uh, and we started our uh, <laughs> journey together. Uh, and then um, got back into uh, college athletics at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and worked at a few universities. And then maybe a little bit later in life than some, I realized that uh, there's more to life than athletics. Uh, I was doing higher education fundraising specifically for athletics and made the change uh, to come to Ohio State at that point and get out of athletic fundraising, but staying in the, the field of higher ed, knowing I, I really, I think, found like, kind of my home uh, in higher ed fundraising and have been at Ohio State basically for about 10 years now in, in a variety of roles. And uh, truly, I think I found my calling. That's fantastic. And, and not unlike many of our listeners or those pondering the nonprofit field or fundraising field, we come in from the lateral kind of what I call lateral entry. Uh, and I'm sure you found though the skills and experiences you picked up at each of those stops has helped you kind of become the leader you are now. In fact, why don't you talk about what, what exactly do you do now? I know you've had various roles at Ohio state, but now uh, talk about the kind of senior leadership role that you have now. Yeah. So for probably the last six months or so, I'm a system vice president at Ohio State and executive director of principal gifts. So at Ohio State, uh, we have a, an office of a few people, myself included, who focus on principal gifts, which at Ohio State is a gift of $5 million or more. Uh, so at Ohio State, like a lot of other universities, we're just uh, blessed to have a, a huge, passionate alumni base uh, and uh, kind of the fans of Ohio State, whether it's from a grateful patient perspective, using our healthcare services, uh, those benefit the state of Ohio from our extension and College of Ag work, and some of us may be some of us may know us um, for athletics here at Ohio State. We do have a, a athletic department that uh, uh, a lot of people follow uh, of all sports, uh, but maybe particularly football stands out a little bit more than others. Um, so we have a, a large what we call Buckeye Nation out there. Those who have graduated from here and those who've just uh, been affiliated with this university in some way. In, in all that, uh, there's uh, people who want to make a significant impact in the world, and they see Ohio State as the place to do that, and we help to, to transfer kind of their wishes and, and what how they want to make that impact in the world and, and how we can have it done here at Ohio State. That's fantastic, and I, I won't devote this episode to verbal jousting that we have done historically between the Big Ten and ACC and our athletic programs. Uh, you may have too much of an upper hand at the moment, but uh, I am fascinated <laughs> by the, the, frankly, the volume of activity. Obviously, Ohio State is a huge and uh, one of the top public institutions in higher education, of course, in the country. 
Um, before we get into some of the mechanics of your leadership there, I guess, as you know, one of the hallmarks of this podcast is exploring productivity. And so I wonder if you would share with our listeners, what are some ways that you help keep yourself organized? Obviously, managing a lot of people, a lot of activity and volume of content. Are there any kind of tips or rituals that you have found particularly effective? Yeah, yeah. And I think I think first is is just the the kind of self-awareness that to be thinking of organization, to be thinking ahead and to be thinking, you know, I forget exactly which book, uh, but, you know, seeing around corners, right? To, to be able exactly. to, to anticipate what may, may be coming that maybe others don't see. And that can be a big thing, like a change in, in tax laws is going to affect philanthropy or, gosh, I have this meeting in two days. I'm not quite ready for it. I, I need to figure out how I can get ready for it. So it's just a, a consistent mindset of always thinking um, what's next. Uh, and then, uh, so how do you stay organized? Yeah, everyone has different different uh, ways to do that. I am overall a low tech person, so I'm actually in my office right now and trying to uh, step over piles on the floor and piles on my desk. And <laughs> uh, but, but but I do have yeah. I listened to the your uh, interview with Will Sparks, um, and yeah, he seemed to have a sim- similar filing system of piles everywhere. But but I know where everything is. And some of the work from David Allen that I know you have read a lot. And, you know, I, I do have a pretty cool filing system, I think, where I can put, put my hand on probably whatever I need for the for the year based on his filing system. Uh, and then I, I'm, I keep lists, right, which is, again, on a piece of paper. I know a lot of your a lot of the sessions I've listened to on your podcast uh, have talked about the, you know, using Microsoft, the calendar to do your to do list and all that. I'm not quite there yet, but I am. Uh, paper and pencil, uh, just trying to stay organized. Well, and as I have said, and you noted, I think there's no one particular answer. David Allen, I, I, I agree, has a great methodology of blending a lot of the items in your life in a way that is meaningful. And, you know, to me, it's not just keeping track of everything, but knowing what to do as a priority. And And I think your point is a good one. Most of us, uh, I think, fall, you know, victim to the just my head down getting through today. And it sounds like you have kind of a specific approach to look at the calendar, uh, look ahead on the calendar. So you aren't kind of blindsided by things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I believe, again, I'm, most of what, I, what I'll say is where I've read somewhere, I've had conversations with others, but the, uh, you know, the ability to again just plan ahead and anticipate what's going to happen sometimes you do just have to put your head down and, and do a project um and, and that's fine and we all do that uh, and sometimes the key to that is just david allen just having that next step like what do you have to do next sometimes when you have a huge project you don't know where to start you just have to do one thing just do one thing and then that'll lead to another thing but you Break should always have the next step right exactly um, and, and then I, I think, again, it's just that mindset of um, always kind of while you're putting your head down, uh, always kind of lifting it up to purposely taking a break from what you're doing and just whether it's looking around or thinking about what's around you or what you have to do next or what's changed. A lot of things can change in a day that uh, you have to recalibrate uh, consistently is what you're working on. Still the most important. 
or did your boss walk in and hand you something else or did something happen in the environment that, that has changed what's most important? Chris, is this a, a kind of mindset that you have obviously developed over time? You know, I'm thinking about those listeners who are new to fundraising, uh, nonprofit and, or aspiring to join, um, what was it like when you first started? Are these lessons you learned early and have uh, kind of developed over the years? Yeah, I wish I would have known them early. Uh, <laughs> no, that definitely developed over the years and, and continue to develop, right? I'm just work in progress like everyone. Um, I, I think reading is, seriously is, is a part of it, just being open to other ideas. I think I've always been curious, which maybe we can circle back to at some point. I think that's a huge topic that maybe doesn't get enough uh, discussion. And then uh, just I had the opportunity for a lot of professional development and I've taken, taken advantage of it. You know, and even if you pick up one thing at whatever it is, at a conference, uh, when you're having lunch with someone. And then I think one of the underrated things about being a development officer is we get to talk by our, the nature of our business. We're out in front of a lot of very successful people. And yes, we're there to do a job and it's to close gifts. And I completely believe that and understand that. But along the way, if we're curious, curious and, and open, you're going to pick up a lot of insight as to how these people became successful. Uh, and I think sometimes maybe as development officers, we don't take full advantage of the audience we have in our day-to-day -day business. That's a great point. And obviously your conversations will be more engaging if you show genuine interest in them as a person, as a leader or whatever profession they're in. But I remember exactly what you described as a, a fundraiser, particularly early on, it's hard not to think about the bottom line of, I got to come out of this with a gift, but your point is a good one. We ought to be able to step back and, and pay attention because there's a lot to be learned. Absolutely. And, and yes, and maybe it's after you close the gift or, you know, again, we all have, we're not, we're there to do a job and everyone understands that. And along the way, even if, even if you don't ask the question, you just listen to what they said or, or in asking development questions, I always like to ask, which, what brought you to XYZ University? What brought you to Ohio State? And you're going to hear a whole bunch of their history most of the time. Uh, and in that, you can even pick up maybe ways that they think about success or what it means to, to, to be educated or whatever the topic is. You're going, to, you're going to get a lot of good information if you ask the right questions. Well, and, and to your point, because you have been such a good proponent of this, I find a great conversation starter is asking them, what are they reading? Speaking of uh, yeah. best books or where do they go for information about leadership or whatever sector of business they're in, but what a great conversation starter. And often I come away jotting notes down, Hey, there's a book that I need to get for myself. You're exactly. I was just traveling with uh, the head of our uh, medical center here and uh, that question came up. What are you reading? Like it, it it's, and maybe it's more you look for things, the more they happen. But I, I genuinely believe that a lot of successful people uh, are reading books of all kind. Uh, this person happened to be reading a uh, kind of historical uh, nonfiction book, which I, I read. I don't read many of those, but it was an interesting one he, he found. Um, but it, it, most of the people that we interact with are reading something. Yeah, exactly right. And of course, we've heard stories of Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and others who famously uh, put their reading lists together and often publish them. Um, but I do think there's something to it. Uh, it. It forces you to have different perspectives. And uh, that's why in this podcast and some of our social media, we're going to continue to lift up 
recommendations from people like you, because I think the collective intelligence we gather is huge. I wonder, Chris, is that, do you explore that when you're interviewing um, candidates? Um, is it something that you kind of uh, use as a means to evaluate someone's desire to be a lifelong learner? Or, or is it more that it occurs kind of after the fact once you've already working with a colleague? That's a great question. <laughs> For all my uh, all my talk about reading on my bookshelf in my office that I have here, I, I don't think I've asked that specific question on an interview yet. I, I think I will start moving forward. Seriously, that's a really good question. Um, I think it can be telling. Uh, I, right? I, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great simple question. I can't believe I thought of before. Um, uh, but, but but yeah, I, I do believe in. Uh, lifelong learning and being genuinely curious. And maybe I'll jump to one of my favorite books, Growth Mindset by Carol, Carol Dweck. I know you've referenced it. Absolutely. Uh, that's one that really, I, I only read that maybe four or five years ago, give or take. Um, and it really changed the way my thinking. And I've used it, you know, what I have used it in is, is reviews, whether, you know, talking with people about, uh, who maybe aren't as open to change or aren't as curious. Uh, and I remember one specific person we had this conversation with during their review and within the last two months, uh, she quoted it back to me. I, I don't longer work with this person. She's still at Ohio state, but I've moved to a different you know, place and uh, a division within Ohio state. And she quoted it back that she remembered specifically quoting that book and that she read the book and it has changed the way uh, she thinks. That's fantastic. And yes. talk about the power of uh, the and depth of books like that. Uh, I am quite familiar with it because I think it, it uh, explains the differences between kind of a fixed and growth mindset, right? And too many of us have fallen victim to a fixed mindset. You know, I'm as smart as I can be, or I have, you know, limited amount of ability and I'm stuck with it. And obviously Carol Dweck, tells us that you a growth mindset confirms you can get a lot better if you were willing to work at it and not kind of defeat yourself. So it sounds like you use that in a, uh, uh, an evaluation type mindset. Uh, and I want to get into that with you because uh, Chris, how, how big is the, the overall advancement operation at Ohio state? It's a huge operation. I mean, relatively speaking, how, how big is it? Yeah. So at Ohio state, we define advancement with marketing communications, alumni, engagement and development and development operation fundraising and all the all the, the aspects of support fundraising as advancement right uh, so we have the full advancement model and there's over 800 people who work in advancement at ohio state within that we have about 130 to 40 um, frontline major gift fundraisers so the people every day waking up thinking about going out and fundraising yep the majority of those are unit-based, so whether it's college, our business school, or athletic department, or our cancer center, we have a full um, uh, medical center here, along with the College of Medicine. Um, so all those people, in the majority of them, are spread out in the units uh, and and do great work uh, in all the. We have about 32 units here that fundraise um, wow. to some degree. Well, and, I, and of course, I know you'd be quick to point out it's all relative. And Ohio State is, is, a, is a huge uh, public university, so it makes sense that you've got a large group helping, uh, you know, seek investment for all the things that you're doing and great work in all of your schools and programs. What 
fascinates me, of course, is that your position now has you thinking a lot about talent development, you know, and you, you have to both attract and retain talented fundraisers and nonprofit professionals. So let me start with the, the, the newcomers to your teams. Um, what are you looking for? What, have you found certain characteristics define those candidates who come to Ohio State and those that succeed versus those that maybe are not quite as successful? Yes. Uh, so I, I think uh, the, the, the ones I've seen who haven't been as successful it's at Ohio State and, and probably a lot of places, maybe in life in general, but it's focus. You can come to a place like Ohio State because we're so big and, and you can get just uh, completely off kilter of what you're supposed to do. Uh, if you're supposed to be a development officer and you're supposed to wake up every day fundraising, you can, you can kind of migrate away from pure development into other, you can do a little alumni work, you can do a little uh, event work, you can do a little of this, a little of that. As a development officer at Ohio State, we're structured so you need to be a development officer 90% of the time. And those people who can't stay focused or don't want to, maybe they come here and realize, well, gosh, I, I like doing a little bit of everything versus being 100% development or 100% stewardship or 100% whatever it is. Because uh, Ohio State, you know, we, we do try to focus on what the specialty of the person's uh, job is. Um, those people either, you know, don't find the fit at Ohio State or maybe it's a fit at Ohio State a different place. So they come in as a pure development officer or they think they want to be and they realize they don't. But, you know, we have enough opportunities here that they can move to maybe truly what their passion area is, whether it's stewardship, whatever it is, we may be able to find another role for them here. Right. So you get the right people on the bus and eventually you put them in the right seats. Um, so. Uh, I, I think focus is is key again everywhere, but I just see it maybe more here at Ohio State than I, other places I've worked. Um, and then um, it may sound counter, but it's really not. Those who are curious, uh, curious to to in all the positive aspects of it, curious how to get better, curious how the College of Engineering raises money versus the College of Business if they happen to be in the College of Business. Right. Curious about Gosh, I wonder once the gift gets processed, what's what what happens then? How, how does the donor actually get their thank you letter? And 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 they're they're still staying in their lane, so to speak, but they're just curious about how the whole operation works. Uh, and I, I think they become I think they become slightly uh, more engaged because they know more than just their specific area of work. Uh, and they're 100% focused on what they're doing, whatever their job description is, and they're doing that, uh, and hopefully a little bit more. Uh, and they're also curious about the greater organization and trying to help in any way they can. That's well put. And so I guess if I'm interviewing with you, Chris, I, you want me to demonstrate focus, particularly if I'm a major gift officer, that as much as I may be involved in other special events or alumni relations you're hiring me for a job. I need to demonstrate a focus to do that job. But the curiosity element is fascinating to me too, that I guess if I'm focused on donor relations, you want me to be thinking about every element of that donor relationship with the university, even if I'm not directly responsible. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Have, go out and have lunch with a development officer and say, okay, you know, when we, when we think about stewarding the gifts, like how, how does that tie into when you're asking for the gifts? 
or what can we do better on the before they even make the gift to kind of steward them uh, in a way. Uh, so I, again, just being curious, and I think by being curious, here's why I think it's so important: is is you realize you don't know everything, right? Just being a little humble. If you're curious, you want by definition you don't know everything. Uh, you're open to new ideas. You're open to the growth mindset. You're open to working with others because you have to, if you're curious, you're asking people most of the time. Sometimes you can Google things, I guess, but you're asking people for their input or their advice or their thoughts. Uh, so I think being curious is, is, is just a sign of something deeper that I, over the years, I've come to believe in. Uh, I love that. And I, is that a theme, I guess, or are there other topics You've been involved in a lot of interviews, uh, again, hiring folks to build this team you have. Are there other key topics you're exploring, I guess, in addition to the technical aspects of does this person have the, you know, requisite skill and experience, but curiosity is something you're looking for, focus you're looking for, anything else, particularly as you kind of evaluate talent? We're positive. What do you mean? Yeah, they, they, they have to have positive nature. Like, you know, they have to, like, they just have to, be a positive person. And again, it ties to growth mindset, I think, but that sure there's going to be challenges along the way. And yes, we can, we can, um, we're going to have our ups and downs, but we're going to get through it, whatever it is. We're going to, you know, have a positive, uh, enjoyable, doesn't have to be fun necessarily, but you know, like a, uh, uh, enjoyable work experience. Um, and whatever happens, we'll, we'll get through it. And just that, that positive mindset, um, and then I think that probably the last thing is ownership. Like, and I know Will Sparks touched on it a touch, but um, people who, when things go bad, they blame others. When things go good, they look to themselves. Right. Right. I, right. I like, I like almost the opposite <laughs> from people. When things go bad, you have to look, gosh, what, what did I do that made the outcome different than what we want? When things go good, you, you, you should share that credit with everyone who, who touched that gift or that stewardship event or whatever it is. Um, I, I like people who, who think like that. And I, I just think they're more successful in, in a team setting. Not that I just like that personality, but I, I, you know, I think they're more successful. Uh, that's, that's a great point. And I think it, it makes for a more authentic interview. I think some folks nervous in an interview setting, of course, want to make everything look perfect and look, make themselves look perfect. But I think, and I'm guessing you would agree that I would – appreciate a candidate who tells me, you know, I had a struggle with this, but here's how I adapted. Here's how I learned from it. As opposed to quite honestly, Chris, what I've seen is people that'll blame someone else back in my former job. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was their fault and yeah. you know, not taking responsibility. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of on during the interview process or what to think about since we're on that topic. And one question I really have started asking uh, is, so when you change jobs, you think about, you and I have talked a little bit about college basketball over the years. You think about like the assistant coach, right? You go from assistant coach, the top assistant coach normally sits right next to the head coach on the bench. Right. So you're just moving over one chair, right? But going from assistant coach to head coach is a lot different than moving one chair, right? There's so much else that comes with it. I like to ask people, okay, so you've had this job doing whatever it is. Now you're moving to this new job and it could be from DO to senior DO or from a senior DO to a unit, uh, uh, like a chief development officer running a unit or whatever it is. How have you thought already about how you're going to have to think and act differently in your new role? 
And that yeah, is different. I, I don't, early on yeah. in my career, I, yeah. Early on in my career, I didn't think like that, right? But over the years, again, reading and just being self-aware and looking at things and really sometimes using sports as an analogy, you know, there's always that great assistant who never quite makes it as a head coach and everyone's curious, you know, each one's different. But I, I do think there's some mindset of you're not just moving a chair over, you're having a completely different role and responsibility and you need to, even before you take the job, be ready for that. That's a, a great illustration. And um, in fact, it, it's a good segue to something we have talked about and I wanted to ask your thoughts on that. How do you evaluate, again, in your setting now or in previous administrations, um, someone who's moved into, let's say, the, the, the next chair over? How do you know that they're ready, though, for senior leadership? You know, what demonstrates someone is ready to move from a major gift officer to someone who manages other major gift officers? Yeah, that's, that's, the, uh, that's like the, one of the biggest questions in fundraising, right? Because most of us, most of our organizations are set up to get promoted. You have to move to management. This is the way the structure is, whether it's salary structure, organizational structure. Right. Uh, and sometimes certain people's strengths might not be management or leadership. They're just really, 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 really good fundraisers. And we should maximize that, play to those strengths, and think differently about how we have them listed in the org chart and how we compensate them and what their title is versus forcing them into a, the organization sometimes forces us into having them to be promoted to now manage people. Um, so we're really thinking a lot about that. Um, can we just have someone continue to career progression in solely focused on development fundraising, yeah. higher expectations, higher gift totals, you know, everything increases, and there's no management there, and they still continue to have a long career at a place like Ohio State or, or elsewhere uh, in that focus because it, it is a challenge, right? And that's where sometimes you see they're really good fundraisers. You know their strengths might not be management or leadership. And, and it's it's not that you can't work with them and build their strengths. It's just down deep they don't have any true interest in that. They'll just do it to get the promotion, and then, and then they don't get it at Ohio State or other university or nonprofit and then they jump. So every two, three years they're jumping to get something else um, because the, the current organization knows they're really good at one thing, but maybe not everything. I think that's, that's very enlightened thinking. And I, I'm guessing Ohio state may is pondering just that because it is so common, at least in my experience that we, we assume the ladder that people want to climb um, is beyond the current scope of activity, but a chief program officer at a nonprofit may may or may not want to be the executive director. A chief development officer may or may not want to be in the senior role, but we limit their opportunity, right? Because there's they've hit a ceiling, and the only way for them to get, you know, frankly, additional compensation is to move into management. But aren't we then? minimizing or, or limiting their real talent. In your case, what you're describing as your best fundraisers move into management and then you've lost them in perhaps the most valuable role they had. Yeah. And, and, and then you, they're not out there fundraising hundred percent of the time or 80% of the time or whatever percent one could fundraise. And then they're managing and they're are in leading. Yeah. I think there's two different pieces there, but 
they're overseeing staff and maybe that's not their strength. And now those staff members aren't maybe flourishing. So it's, it's like a compounded negative effect. Right. Uh, versus just letting them continue to fundraise. Uh, and, you know, and, and they have to, they have to do things that are over and above what the quote unquote normal DO is or senior DO, whatever level they are. They're, they're, they're consistently, not just one year, consistently, um, just blowing past the normal kind of standard goals or whatever that the set uh, DO metrics are. Um, they're like, Oh gosh, they're really good at this. Let's, let's continue to think about how we can promote them and within reason, right? I mean, as we all have, uh, organizational structure that, that will limit certain things, but, uh, let's just play their strengths, which again is a theme I've heard on all your podcasts so far. Well, absolutely, or some variation of it. But I guess I want to ask you, kind of, so what's Ohio State doing about it? Is it, are you exploring things like expanding the salary kind of ranges for positions where historically someone would hit that ceiling and be forced either to leave or, um, you know, move into a position that maybe they don't really want? You know, what do you do about it, I guess, is is my question. Yeah, so, so first, we, you know, you, you kind of become aware of it. You think about it, you talk about it, and it, it doesn't just happen overnight, right? So, and then, you know, the first step was we look at uh, typically when people would be promoted from DO to senior DO at Ohio State, uh, which is, yeah, the, the, obviously it's a senior level, both in experience and, and productivity. The only way you can do that was to be, uh, you'd have to oversee staff to become a senior DO. Now we've created senior DO non-management roles, is what we call them, pretty straightforward. Uh, that they they could they earn the senior DO title and additional compensation, and their focus is still 100% on fundraising, and their nice. metrics go up accordingly. So how much they raise goes up, um, and they can just focus focus on fundraising. And for certain people, um, it's it's so far been successful because because we know that's their strengths. We know that's what they want. They're clear that they don't. At this moment in their life or career, they don't want to manage people. They just want to fundraise. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I'm impressed because one would assume in a large organization that you would be dealing with a you know significant amount of bureaucracy. But it sounds like there's enough senior leadership awareness to be willing to look at things differently, the org chart in particular. That's what we do here at the Ohio State University. <laughs> yeah, I won't get into I had to work that in once. Yeah, yes. yes. <laughs> I, I'm sure the marketing folks love the fact that you're inserting the the. Um, yes. But one thing I, I know you personally are uh, a champion, again, of professional development. And talk about how uh, you approach that organizationally. Um, encouraging – how does professional development work at Ohio State – it's, I'm guessing it's part of the initial onboarding, and as someone advances, um, is that just built into the annual review? Uh, I'm thinking for our listeners that are executive directors, senior managers that want to do a better job of providing professional development. How do you all provide professional development at Ohio State? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's part of what we do now. So when I started in 09, 2009 here at Ohio State, it wasn't as much. It was still there, but you had to maybe search it out a little bit more, uh, ask for it. Um, uh, uh, Mike Eicher, our senior VP for advancement here at Ohio State, when he joined, gosh, maybe seven years ago, six years ago, as our leader. I mean, he, he that's just what he believes. So it, 
really starts with leadership, right? Not surprising. If, it's, if people at the top believe that professional development is important, um, then it, it's definitely going to kind of trickle down in the organization. Uh, and then there's the financial commitment too, right? It's, that's the challenge for some nonprofits, some universities, um, some whatever type of entity we're talking about. It costs money. Now, not all of it has to be um, extremely expensive. I mean, it could be, <laughs> but uh, there's just some sim simple things from, think about being on a university uh, setting specifically. How many smart people, how many professors and really smart people do we have around this campus? Um, and maybe instead of sending everyone to an XYZ conference where you have to pay for travel and hotel and airfare and the conference costs and everything, you do a simple on on-campus session, you bring in uh, the leadership expert from the business school or the uh, uh, psychologist, you know, to talk about the, the what goes through someone's mind when they're making decisions or whatever the topic is you want to talk about. Probably on your campus, again, if you work at a university, you're going to have an expert in that. You have an in-service day, you bring all your development officers together, and it's, it's not a lot of money right there, right? Now, there's the time that they're not fundraising, but I think that's fine for a day or two, you know, right. a quarter or so. So it's just that belief in it. If you don't have a lot of money, I'm sure we can all get creative. You think about nonprofits, board members they have, others in the community. Who doesn't want to come and talk? You know, it's, it's an honor to be asked to come and address the North Carolina Special Olympics development team about productivity or whatever the topic is. Um, That's a win-win. You just need to be creative. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Especially with volunteers. You're exactly right. Uh, and even faculty, right? And you, you, you start to build the bridges of, you know, when you bring in a faculty expert, they maybe they understand a little bit more what development is and what it isn't. Uh, and you build that relationship on campus. Uh, that's a great point. And I, not to dismiss, and neither of us are doing that, the, the value of some conferences and the ability to kind of interact with people across the country, across the world. But I bet every listener to this episode has resources in their community. And so instead of just waiting for the next conference to answer your question, perhaps you should pose the question both internal to your organization and or to your community. And that's a great cost-effective way to put together professional development. Absolutely. And, and depending on, <clears throat> excuse me, depending on the speaker, um, like you referenced, it, it, it could be, it could have multiple benefits to it, not just the professional development that, the, the staff uh, gains from it, but that interaction with the volunteer, the, the community leader, the faculty person, building that relationship, they maybe then become an advocate for you in the community, whatever that community is, campus community or, or a, you know, city type community. Um, and it could just, there's a lot of good that comes out of it. Right. Yeah, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Um, well, Chris, you talked about that process. It, I guess I want to go back to onboarding because that's something I think uh, at Ohio State you all have been intentional. So when someone joins the advancement uh, division or team or whatever, um, that you have a formal onboarding process that I think has, has evolved. Is that correct? Uh, yes, yes. Um, so it is uh, so basically like over a two-week period, it's it's – it's very well thought out. Uh, it used to be called Buckeye Boot Camp, but we've changed the name, and I honestly forget <laughs> exactly what the new name is right now. Uh, but uh, works. Yeah. yeah, exactly, it, and it, it 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 does work. Uh, and it's you know 
people can only start on certain dates within development or within advancement. So you you start like every two weeks or so, and you start with a cohort. So one thing you have, you start with a group of people who just started like you. So I think that builds, so at least you know four or five people from day one outside nice. your unit, most of these. Uh, and then there's a structure. You know, some of it is signing your HR paperwork and picking out what investment you know you want and all that. Uh, all those kind of just things that have to happen and that's like day one and then the rest of the two weeks. And it's not two weeks consistent, but it's three hours on one day, two hours on the next day. And uh, so it allows you to both be in your unit or wherever your, your home location is and then also be with this cohort learning. And you get to hear from uh, all aspects, you know, so you're here, here, Ohio State, you hear from some of the alumni association, some from development, some from the medical center, some from marketing communication, some from stewardship. You know, we just round out the org chart and you get to hear all those people and what they do. Um, and again, over a two week period. Uh, and it, it's, I think it's, it's, it's great. And now we're, we're kind of going to the next evolution. So typically there's that. So you, you get all these things your first two weeks and it's awesome. Then you get six, seven, eight months in your job, and you're like, "Oh gosh, kind of forgot what happened on week two. <laughs> right, right. So you know, it, like, it was a fire hose then, so, right? Exactly. So what now we're trying to think about? Okay, it probably needs to be maybe a year or so of true onboarding at most places, but again, you know, Ohio State's a pretty big place. So, um, so six, seven, eight months. What? How do we need to think about what's the next phase of onboarding? And then maybe after a year, you have a final onboarding, knowing that we're always going to continue to learn and grow. But the official onboarding may be done at a set point, and then you just then it becomes the natural rhythm of work. That's a fantastic idea, and I've talked about this to a lot of nonprofit leaders. One, and I'm being intentionally provocative. One, I think we in the nonprofit sector do a terrible job of onboarding in general. It is usually a combination of a quick tour and a large three ring binder and basically, you know, go to it. <laughs> so yeah. is it any wonder, Chris, that we have the turnover we have because, you know, your passion for the mission of the organization may carry you for a while, but eventually you're just, that fire hose will drown you. But I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the concept one of the organization, the thought given to that initial two week period, and again, regardless of the size of our nonprofit, we can be more intentional about designing the first two weeks, not just the first day and go at it, but who do you need to meet? What information do you need to, to obtain? But what you're suggesting is you're right. I'm, I'm six months, nine months, 12 months. I've been through maybe a full calendar cycle. It would seem to me you're right. That's exactly when I need another round now that I've actually experienced all the things that happen over the course of a year at Ohio State. Yeah, and again, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, when you and I were at North Carolina Special Olympics, we had a lot less resources maybe than other universities who worked out. But, you, you know, it, it, I, think, I think you can scale up to the, to the organization that doesn't have to cost a lot of money. There's a little time, right, to at least get it going uh, to start the, whatever the onboarding is. And once you have it done, you know, like once you've completed a two-week onboarding that, let's say it takes a day to really just lock your door and do nothing else for a day. Then you have it for a while. You need to kind of look at it every month or two or three, but you've had it. So just that initial investment is going to pay dividends down the road. And I know it's tough sometimes because that means it's a day or an hour or two that you're not doing something else that may be more urgent, 
and timely, but not as important. Um, so it's it's a it's a constant battle that we all um, have those challenges. No, it's a great point, and I've I've read recently that um, instead of doing exit interviews, which uh, or in addition to doing exit interviews, often there is great feedback in interviewing those that right as they arrive to our organization, because sometimes they kind of see the forest through the trees and can offer advice that can help us improve. If nothing else, hey, here's something else I didn't understand early on. I wish you had told me. So uh, it seems to me that that one-year-end juncture, that orientation or onboarding you described would be an opportunity for the organization to get better if they simply talk to the folks that have now been on board, you know, not for years and years, but even just a few months because they will have good insight. Yeah, you know, I, I like to do that kind of informally. So just had lunch, yes, well, maybe a couple months ago now with someone who I was involved in their hiring and, you know, I don't know, three, four, man, that's probably five months they've been here, five, six months. And I said, okay, you know, we're launched at my favorite Mexican place here in Columbus. Uh, <laughs> I said, okay, you know, what, what did I tell you during the interview process that didn't turn out to be exactly right? Interesting. You know, not that I would ever lie or anything, just, my perception of, okay, here's your challenges of the job. Here's your, here's the, the uh, things you need to look out for. Here's our strengths. And he, and he was, he was pretty open. I, I didn't miss too many things, but there's one or two things that maybe I, I didn't know about that would be challenges. So I, I, I like, I started to use that question more for That's people I was involved question. in the hiring process, just to fact check. And it's, it, you know, it helps me understand maybe where there's, um, things in the organization I'm not aware of. Right. Well, and again, you, you came on years ago. So the experience of working with HR or working with any other department may be different now for newcomers and, but good for you for asking because it may open your eyes to elements of the organization that need to be revisited. And, and I'm sure that person appreciated it, right? That you were even curious about their early experience. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think, again, people like, you know, they're, they're fast, again, to be curious, you know, and you're asking them questions. They legitimately, you want to learn something and they feel more part of the process. Um, and then um, it, it, it's just that kind of being curious in a lot of different ways um, and that just becomes kind of normally how you, how you, um, how you act. Yeah, exactly. Um well, Chris, let me move into the final phase. You know, we've talked about kind of the newcomers, your journey, arriving into fundraising and, and nonprofit work, lessons learned, advice you've gotten and given, uh, moving up the ladder. Um, now in a senior leadership role, I, I guess, are there any things that have surprised you having been at this this level or, or lessons you would share with other senior leaders who are managing a lot of folks and still having many responsibilities to juggle. You know, I, I think that, that um, one thing, um, you know, early on when I started, I had a clear vision. I was going to be a director of athletics at a division one institution by the time I was 50, right? I had a clear, clear vision of what I wanted to be. Yep. What I thought I wanted to be. Uh, and, and along the way, maybe like I'm completely, I'm so happy and, thrilled at my job and what I get to do every day here, but it's, it, I just turned 50 this year. It's, it's nowhere near what I 
thought my goal was to be when I was 50. All right. All right. All right. Uh, and, and I, I can't imagine many jobs better than what I have out there. Um, so, so it's that fine balance between having a hundred percent clear focused goal. I want to be X. I want to be this by the time, by, by age of X and being open to what comes along to you along your life. So you I mean, you talk about, now, like when we were growing up, when we were kids, uh, <laughs> not many people grew up wanting to be a fundraiser, right? Exactly. You, know, you didn't. You want to be a basketball player or, or a teacher or fireman or, or whatever, whatever the, the the thing you wanted to be. Uh, so I, I think being more open along your career progression to just thinking about what your career could evolve to, uh, and maybe every three years versus. I said I wanted to be that, you know, when I was 50, I wanted to be an athletic director. But, you know, when in my 20s, like maybe every two or three years, you just maybe recalibrate what you want to be or what you think you want to be and be open to just opportunities along the way that maybe take you off your path. But ultimately, it's maybe the path you're meant to be on. So so, so I think, it, you know, as you think about now in, in my career, again, you think you need to be curious. You need to stay humble. You need to be open to hearing other ideas as soon as I believe, as soon as I think I'm an expert in anything, then that's yep. where I'm, I'll be in trouble. Yep. As soon as I think I know everything about principal gifts, which I don't and never will, but if I pretend I'm this expert, it's, it's going to backfire. You know, I may sound great at a conference once like oh, at Ohio state, we do all this, but day to day, it's, it's not going to work. Uh, it, I don't believe it will. Uh, so I, I just think it's tough, but you just have to stay humble and always open to hearing others' perspectives and don't always think you you have the answer. And I, I think one thing I've learned along the way, and I picked this up from uh, our provost, Bruce McFerrin, who I worked with when we were both in the College of Food, Agriculture, Environmental Sciences here at Ohio State. He was the dean. I was the chief advancement officer. He noticed when he became dean that when when he spoke in a meeting, he had to be careful because most of the time it ended the meeting. So whatever the discussion was, he spoke and people said, okay, well, the, the, the that must be spoke. the last that's word. It. He's the boss. So that's exactly. the last word. Yeah. yeah. Versus he just wanted to be part of the conversation. He's a great person. He just wants to be part of the conversation. Um, so I, that, that just stuck with me. And now I'm very careful when I say something, it's just, Hey, it's just my thoughts or, this is not the final answer. This is, this is, I just want to comment here versus when I, sometimes depending on your title, when you speak, people are like, Oh, okay. Meeting done. The decision has been made. I think we all just need to be careful as we, as we move up the organization that uh, we change the conversation uh, unintentionally most of the time. That's a great point. It's an unintended consequence when, we're used to being part of conversations and now we're seen as the senior leader around the table. We need to make sure we're not inhibiting everybody else. Correct. And by asking quite again, by being curious, truly asking questions of others and not just saying, here's what I think, but asking questions of what others think and maybe entering into a discourse, a true conversation with them about, oh, that's interesting. You think this. I, I didn't think about that aspect. Tell me more. Why why do you think that way? What in your experience has got you? I think that, that really helps in those situations. That's excellent. Uh, great leadership lesson 
there. And I'm, I'm struck back to your point about kind of sharpening your long-term vision because I would suggest while you didn't end up exactly where you thought you would be, it seems to me though that your, your focus on a long-term vision very much kept you moving forward and, and then coupled with uh, kind of an openness to opportunity. Um, I'm sure you don't regret wanting to be an athletic director early on because it did, that motivated you, right? And fortunately that being motivated on a path forward uh, is also likely going to give you other opportunities as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I I don't regret any really career decision. They've all worked out to put me in the place I am today. Um, Now, and I I learned a lot in the the athletic world, had a lot of fun. um, And it, and it really helps now when, when I, you know, work at a university that has athletics, most, almost every university has an athletic department. I think it can have different importance in size scale scope, but they have one. Um, and I, I understand a little bit about that world. It's not foreign to me, maybe someone who hasn't actually lived in college athletics. Um, so I think as you think about your career, uh, again, I, I think we all need to stay in our jobs and, and, and not move every two, three years. And when you make moves, make sure they're, they're filling a bucket on your resume or on whatever you think your next, what you want to be when you grow up. It, it helps fill a box or, or a void that you may have uh, that it's not just moving to move or moving to get a little bit more money or moving from a DO to a senior DO and you're still focused on fundraising. Sometimes that, that makes complete sense. But really think about is it, is it truly rounding out your, your resume? Right. Kind of building that career portfolio that will help you in whatever your ultimate leadership position is. Correct. Because most of the time a path isn't, I mean, the um, a, a career path isn't really straightforward, right? It's right. not just a clear path that you can see from beginning to end and it's completely uncovered and you don't have to walk through the forest where you can't see a path or, you know, it, so you never quite know in the real life where the path is going to, go or where it's going to take you. I've, I've used, Chris, the analogy of you're, you're building a vehicle to handle all the twists and turns of the path, right? Or the road that you're on or whatever uh, kind of illustration you want to use. But the more you can strengthen your vehicle, it can handle when you go off road <laughs> or when you need to speed up, Absolutely. Or slow down or, or carry other people in the back seat. Um, but what you describe is certainly you know, building a vehicle that can take you for the long haul. Yeah. And, and, and can your experiences help when your vehicle's GPS system goes out, right? Yeah. Good point. Um, you know, so, so can you still navigate I mean, my, my, my nephew, Jimmy, I gave him a map one day, this is 10, 12 years ago. He's a, he's a freshman in college now, but I threw a map in the back seat to him and he's never seen a map before. Right. <laughs> he's like, uncle Chris, just pull out your phone. I'm like, no, Jimmy you have to learn to use a map because what happens when the GPS goes out? So I, I think you think about your, your career. Sometimes you, you, you don't know what's going to come. Your GPS doesn't, doesn't foreshadow what this next meeting or this next topic or this next uh, thing that's going to be brought in front of you is. But if you're, if you had the right amount of experience and, and you're working the right organization with the right leader, you can help get through it without really knowing what the final uh, what the end vision looks like at the moment you're, you're battling through it. Yeah. Excellent point. 
and uh, uh, among many you have made. And Chris, I appreciate your time. You've kind of used your journey to illustrate lots of good advice for those starting on the path and those in leadership positions who are now working with uh, others that are just starting as well. Uh, so really appreciate it. I, I guess uh, I bet you could give me a dozen books on the top of your mind, but is there one or maybe two in the professional development space that you would say, hey, somebody needs to go read this one if they're looking for a good read in the professional development kind of topic? Well, the, the one, yeah, I talked about growth mindset, Carol Dweck. I think that's that's kind of top five. And you know, maybe in the future, we can really do a dedicated book podcast and kind <laughs> yes. of nerd out on this stuff like we do. Uh, but so I think the, the 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 book I'm hoping becomes the next best book. I'm really starting to read books about questions, like uh, how do you ask the right questions. Um, and there's one or two books that I have kind of on my bookshelf to read around that that whole area of again engaging dialogue with people as a leader. You shouldn't know all the answers. Yep. You shouldn't pretend to know all the answers. But how do you use you know appreciative inquiry i think is one of the phrases but yep how do you really ask questions that, that help maybe prove the points you want to prove that you do it in a different way you truly get people's input and insight so next time we talk i hopefully i've gotten through these the few books i have lined up and i'll be able to say my next or my best new <laughs> the most <laughs> recent book i've be, read that's yeah, my best evolving yeah is xyz so but you got to give me one now. What, what, what would you put now as uh, a recommendation or, or would you stay with mine? Uh, grit. Okay, good. Yeah, grit. no, I think grit, yep. Angela Duckworth. And, and actually, you know, th there's some crossover between the growth mindset and grit. Yeah, good uh, point. And then actually, you know, since we talked a little bit about college basketball along the way here, I think almost any book by John Wooden, you know, he, he, the way he articulates leadership. Indeed. Um, has it's just been fascinating. Um, and some of his little, little the phrases he uses that he, uh, you know, the one I always use when we talk about kind of details matter, you know, when, when he would have the freshmen come to campus, we're talking about some of the best basketball players ever, Lou Alcindor, when he was there, became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walton, you, you go on and on. He, t he taught them all to, to how to put on their socks correctly. <laughs> exactly. Right. But he, he was making it, a point. You don't put though, your socks he? on correctly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, you got to start with the small things. If you don't put your socks on correctly, you're going to get blisters. If you get blisters, you can't play. If you can't play, like you know, you're not going to help us. Right. Uh, so he he would every year start preseason basketball with teaching people how to put their socks on correctly. I think that's a great statement and like a vision of what little things matter. And if yep. you do a whole bunch of little things right, the big thing, the big outcome is going to happen. Very rarely does a big outcome happen just because it's a series of small, important, maybe not overly exciting, how to put on your socks type of stuff, but it matters. Good advice, Chris. Uh, as always, uh, great chatting with you. Um, I'll certainly put in the show notes uh, links to your story. Um, is there anything in particular at, at Ohio State that you would uh, direct people to find out more about the good work you're doing there? Well, you know, we, we just launched uh, our new campaign, Time and Change. And, and, the, and the really unique thing we did is in addition to a dollar goal, right? 
4.5 billion is our campaign dollar goal. The, the thing we've really stressed is we want to have a million donors, unique donors, be part of our campaign. It'd be the first time in higher education that that's ever happened. Uh, we, we, we really want participation and want everyone, we want Buckeye Nation to feel part of the Ohio State University. And we're, we're one of the rare universities in the country that, that, can, that can amass a million people to make a gift um, during our campaign. Um, so that's that's like what I think is very exciting right now and how we're trying to think a little differently about campaigns, particularly because a, a lot of people can throw out a lot of big numbers of the campaign. And that's awesome. Sometimes it's hard for everyone to see themselves in that big number of dollars. Right. right. But I can see myself as if I make a gift, I count towards a million goal, the million donor goal. I can I can like it's easy to to, to see myself in my hundred dollars my $50, my $5 million, it all counts <laughs> towards that single goal for donors. So it, it's a, it's a it's an equalizer. And I think something that hopefully will, will bring people closer to us. That's fantastic, Chris. Well, uh, I'll link maybe specifically to your campaign page or website, because I think that is a fascinating study, uh, regardless of the size or scope of your campaign. And Let's face it, every nonprofit is either in or considering a campaign, but that would be a great strategic case study for everyone else to see how you all are articulating both the dollars and the participation. Absolutely. And Patton, you know, I want to thank you for your leadership along my my journey and my path. I would not be here without your uh, insight early in my career. Well, you're nice to say, Chris. Well, keep up the great work for Buckeye Nation and uh, stay warm. Uh, We're recording this in January of 2020. So I'm guessing Columbus is a bit chilly, but uh, we'll uh, put all this good information into the show notes. And thanks again for joining me today, Chris, on the path. Thank you, Patton. Well, I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Chris as much as I did. And if you haven't fully embraced the professional development book reading train ride, uh, at least grab one book off the train as it goes by and put that on your list. You know, advance your thinking around professional development. And I hope that this episode provides you a book to start that journey with. Also, think about a book that you can recommend to someone else. Um, and perhaps consider, as Chris and I did, using a peer to uh, inspire a reading campaign, uh, a book club, if you will, uh, but anything that will help keep you in the mix for professional development, I think, is certainly positive. Uh, once again, don't forget the show notes available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find direct links to these books and other resources And as always, maybe share this episode with somebody else who's thinking about reading more and maybe needs some ideas. Uh, We'd certainly like to introduce folks to the path. And by subscribing, of course, you won't miss any of our weekly episodes as well as bonus episodes coming up in the next few weeks. Thanks again for all the work you're doing in the nonprofit sector and keep it up for those causes that are meaningful to you. We'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.